In the name of God, who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in you. Our passage from John's Gospel this morning is one of the most debated passages in the entire Bible. And I can't help but think that if you are here visiting this morning and maybe exploring Christianity, that Jesus' words maybe made your decision pretty easy. If being a Christian means being a cannibal, then no thank you. Well, this misunderstanding of what Jesus is saying here goes all the way back to the second century at least, when the Romans charged the first Christians of cannibalism. And when you read a passage like this one, you can see why such a misunderstanding would come about. But don't let this shocking cannibalistic language be a smokescreen that keeps you from seeing the perhaps more stark claim that Jesus is making here. When we put this passage back in its context, we see that Jesus is rebuking those who cared only for the physical and not the spiritual. The Jews in this passage had seen the feeding of the 5,000, and Jesus rebukes them saying that they sought Him out not because they saw the sign with the eyes of faith, but rather because they had eaten their fill of the loaves. They had missed the entire point. They missed the spiritual truth while enjoying this physical sign. And throughout this entire bread of life discourse, Jesus is painstakingly making one simple point. That it is essential to place one's faith in Him. In our passage today, which comes near the end of the entire discussion with the Jews, Jesus adopts their own language in all its offensiveness in order to put His spiritual point in the strongest possible language. The passage is ultimately about faith. It tells us about the nature of faith, the necessity of faith in Christ, and the result of placing one's faith in Christ. And so that's what I want to look at with you this morning, those three things. The nature of faith, the necessity of faith in Christ, and the result of faith in Christ. So first, what do we learn about the nature of faith? As I said, this chapter of, uh, the sixth chapter of John's Gospel is really about the reaction to this miraculous sign of the feeding of the 5,000. The Jews were thinking with their stomachs, not with their souls. And so Jesus launches into a metaphor that teaches us a lot about the nature of faith. He says that He is the bread of life and we must eat Him. Of course, this would be offensive to the original audience who were Jews. and They weren't allowed to eat pork, much less human beings. So what does eating and drinking actually tell us about faith? Well, first it tells us that faith is not primarily an intellectual activity. When you think of hunger or thirst, you probably don't think about your mind. Rather, you probably are thinking about your gut, your appetites. Hunger and thirst are longings, they're desires. And so the eating and drinking of which Jesus speaks of has to do primarily with our entire being, not simply just our minds. I think too often people think of faith like this. When they hear the phrase, I have faith in God, what they really mean is that they know about God. They believe in His existence. Maybe they know that He claimed to be 
uh, man. Maybe they know that he claimed to die on a cross and rise from the grave. But the faith that Jesus is talking about here is not simply knowing about something or someone. It's not merely to have certain facts at your disposal, nor is it even to give intellectual assent only to those facts. James chapter 2 says that even demons believe in God in that way. So what separates the faith of demons and that of a Christian? It is the aspect of faith that Jesus alludes to here when he's talking about eating and drinking. You see, when you eat something, there's actually a lot going on. You, you eat food to satisfy a hunger. But imagine merely looking at a loaf of bread on a table, believing that it would satisfy your hunger. You, now, you need that knowledge, and it's true knowledge, but it does you no good as long as that bread remains on the table. Even if you sincerely believe, it'll actually uh, nourish your stomach. You know, the faith that Jesus is speaking of here involves deep personal appropriation. Faith involves the exercise of your will. It's to trust that the bread will do its job in such a way as to lay hold of it, to bring it to your mouth, and to eat it. Only then will your hunger be satisfied. So faith, like eating and drinking, is to trust uh, in such a way that there is a personal appropriation of the object of your trust. But I want, to, I want you to notice something, uh, another thing about the nature of faith in this regard, and that is that every single person has faith in something. Jesus here is stating something really important about what it means to be human, namely that every single one of us has spiritual hungers. There are deep existential longings in the heart of every single person, whether we recognize them or not. Every single one of us eats and drinks something in order to satisfy those desires. It's simply what it means to be a human being. So the question isn't so much if you are eating and drinking, but rather, what are you eating and drinking? Notice that Jesus has something to say, not just to religious people. He has come to address everyone. So the fundamental question for every human being is not do you have faith, but in what are you placing your faith? So the nature of faith is to trust and appropriate something in order to satisfy a desire. And that leads us, secondly, to Jesus' radical claim, the necessity of faith in Him. He says, unless you eat of the, son, of the flesh of the Son of Man, you have no life in you. What Jesus says, even though it's metaphorical, is nonetheless stark and absolute. He's saying that you are dead apart from eating Him, apart from having faith in Him. See, Jesus offended many in his own day, and he continues to do so today. Jesus and the entirety of the Scriptures teach that every single one of us is born spiritually dead ever since the fall of man. See, in the beginning, our first parents partook of the wrong food in an act of rebellion against God. And while God covered their sin and their shame, sparing them from physical death, nonetheless, their hearts remained in a state of sin. They were spiritually dead. We are told in no uncertain terms throughout the Scriptures that each of us has inherited a corrupt nature. As the Apostle Paul says, we are now by nature children of wrath. And I know this is offensive to those who basically see themselves as good, those who reject that there's really any substantial thing wrong with them. But these are the unambiguous words 
of Scripture. We are sinners by nature and choice. We are alienated from God, and we've set ourselves up as God's enemies. And so Jesus says here that apart from faith in Him, we have no fellowship with God, the source of abundant life. While we may be physically alive, we are spiritually dead. We have no life in us. We feed on things that do not satisfy our deepest longings. And history is littered with sad examples of this exercise in futility where people have tried to find life apart from God. Last week, Jeff shared the story of the Flying Scotsman, Eric Little, who was known for running in the 1924 Olympic Games in Paris. And in the movie Chariots of Fire, which tells the story, the antagonist in the story is a man named Harold Abrams, who's also a, he's a runner competing for Great Britain in the Games. And one of the stark contrasts between these two competitors is the reason why they run. For little, he runs out of gratitude and to the glory of God. And as such, he's even willing to forego competing in the Olympics, something he's trained for for years, if it conflicts with his relationship with God. Little refuses to compete on the Sunday of his scheduled race, even despite the Prince of Wales imploring him to do so as a duty to his country. But Abrams, on the other hand, he runs for a very different reason. Right before the 100-meter race in Paris, Abrahams is alone with one of his teammates and his coach, and he quietly is reflecting on what is about to happen. He says, I'm 24 years old, and I've never known contentment. I'm forever in pursuit, and I don't know what I'm chasing. I'm scared. And after all this training, I've lost the 200-meter race already, and in one hour's time, I'll be right there again. I'll raise my eyes and look down that corridor of time, four feet wide and ten lonely seconds to justify my whole existence. For Abraham's, everything was riding on that race. And maybe you and I aren't running in the Olympics, but I tell you what, we know what it's like to be in Abraham's shoes. We face the inclination to justify our own existence in similar ways. We look to justify our whole existence in life, maybe by finishing at the top of our class, or by landing that uh, dream job, or getting into the right school, or making enough money to do what we want. Maybe we're uh, looking to, to make it and start up a business or get enough followers on Instagram maybe to land a big gig. We think if we just get, you know, fill in the blank, then, then our existence will be justified. But one of my favorite quotes comes from actor and comedian Jim Carrey, who knows the futility in all of this. He said, I think everyone should get rich and famous and do everything that they ever dreamed of so they can know that it's not the answer. I think for many of us, we intuitively know that it's wrong to justify our existence in this way. And so we seek to justify our existence in more covert or subtle ways. For those who are naturally more sensual, they will deny the overall meaning of life and say that the measure of a good life is simply to be found in accumulating the most physical pleasure, having the most experiences of happiness. Maybe others who see this as uh, too shallow, they reduce the goal of life to the emotional and, and re relational realm. For them, the goal of life is simply to have good relationships. 
And while that does pick up on some part of the truth, if we feed our souls on this and this alone, it will leave you malnourished and starving. Think about it. In any relationship that you have, uh, where the greatest purpose in your life is to be found in connection with that other person, then whenever that person lets you down, whenever they cross you, whenever they fail you, you won't only be crushed, but you'll lack the ability to truly love them in return. You'll smother them. You'll steamroll them. Or or you'll stonewall them. Whenever you find yourself in conflict with someone that is tied to your ultimate meaning of existence, you won't be able to enter into that conflict confidently, gently, yet firmly in order to truly love them. While these are all various ways of justifying our existence, and they're, they're all different, they do have one thing in common for those of us who live in the modern era. They all assume that we must create our own meaning and purpose in this life. It was the Canadian philosopher Charles Taylor who gives two helpful terms in in understanding this shift that's happened in the last few centuries when it comes to finding meaning and purpose in life. These terms are mimesis and poiesis, and stick with me for a second. You see, before the Enlightenment, people had a mimetic view of the world. That is, they saw the world as having a given order, a a given meaning, and and there was objective reality in the world. And the task of human beings was to look outside of themselves to discover that meaning and then conform themselves to it. But by way of contrast, a poetic view of the world sees the world as simply just raw material that individuals must use to create their own purpose and meaning in life. The meaning of life in a poietic world is simply individualistic and subjective. And so ever since the Enlightenment, because of modern technology and modern philosophy, this is how the average person sees the world today. A poietic world is one in which the ultimate reality simply exists in one's own mind. Any purpose or meaning must be constructed internally and individualistically. In a poetic world, all moral absolutes are lost. And the the one thing that you must not do is to tell another where to find meaning and purpose. The absolute that you must adhere to is to never cross uh, the sincere expression of another person. To do so would be to deprive them of all sense of identity and purpose. And this is precisely why our world says that everyone is just fine the way they are. Our world says that the only thing that that people need today is more self-esteem, more encouragement, more self-love, more confidence to express who they really are. But this poetic view of the world ends up destroying itself. It's like a snake who starts to consume itself by the tail. If, in fact, there is objective truth in the world, and if, in fact, God has revealed and exists and revealed himself, and if, in fact, we are not fine, but rather are in a dire situation, then at least we have a better explanation of our world today, which is filled with plenty of well-educated people who are nonetheless depressed, greedy, and hypocritical. Let me ask you this morning, have all the scientific and educational gains made in the last 200 years, have they really done much to help our society in terms of overall peace and happiness? I would submit to you that they they haven't. And no wonder the message of Jesus is offensive in our modern day. He comes and asserts that you are not the source of purpose in your life. He is. 
He says, you are not all right, and the modern therapeutic messages are not going to do. Imagine a doctor telling a patient that they are just fine when in fact they have a terminal disease. We would all agree that such a thing would be criminal. My friends, Jesus is the good physician who has the courage to tell you the truth about your condition. He says that you and I are full of sin, that we're, we're bent inwards on ourselves. We are looking for ultimate satisfaction in things that don't last. We are eating food that perishes. We place supreme significance on created things. And they can never hold up the existential weight of our deepest longings. But he doesn't just have the courage to tell you your true diagnosis. He speaks the truth and then he provides the only remedy to help you, to heal you. And that remedy is himself. And that leads me to the last point, the the result of faith in Jesus. In verse 51, just prior to our passage, Jesus says that I am the living bread that has come down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. This metaphor of eating and drinking is fitting on another level. You see, food comes to us only through death. Plants are plucked, grains are picked, animals are killed, all so that we might have food. It is only through the death of one life that food can be given for another's life. In our passage, Jesus says that the flesh and blood of the Son of Man are the sources for true life. And where did Jesus give his flesh and blood for the life of the world? It was at the cross. John begins his gospel by saying that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and in Him was life. God, the source and author of all life, then takes on human flesh, and He gives that flesh and sheds His blood on the cross as a substitute for the guilty so that they might have life in Him. God's own self-giving, climatically displayed at the cross, is the source for true life. The result of faith is that you can be united to Jesus. It is through faith that we become in Him. It is through faith that we eat of Him. And in turn, He also indwells us. Faith is the instrument by which we lay hold of Jesus Christ. Faith is like the feeding tube through which our souls partake of the risen life of Jesus, which begins to heal us through and through. My friends, when you trust and appropriate what Jesus did for you on the cross, both in His death, where His flesh and blood covered and atoned for your sin, and then also in His resurrection, where He defeated the power of death, ensuring your own resurrection one day, then Jesus' death becomes your death. His life becomes your life. But as wonderful as these benefits are, even more marvelous than the blessings of forgiveness and eternal life, the most sublime reality is that you are now restored to the one relationship for which you were made. He is now yours, and you are His. He Himself is the food that satisfies your deepest hungers. If I could adapt the famous words of St. Augustine, God has made us for Himself, and our hearts are hungry until they find their satisfaction in Him. My friends, let me close with this. If you are here this morning and have hungered and thirsted after all that the world has offered 
only to find yourself more and more starved and depleted. Know that true, abundant, eternal life is held out to you right now. Christ offers Himself to you afresh this day as the true food which will satisfy your soul and which will never run out. Maybe you're here this morning and you've already tasted of the good uh, food in Jesus Christ. And maybe you're battered by the world around you. Maybe you're tempted time and time again to go back to that old junk food that the world offers. Maybe it's just the tangibility of all these false foods that make them so powerful in your own life. Well, if that's you, then, then know this. Jesus knows the struggle personally. He has given you more than just simply His Word. He also gives you tangible things to sustain you. His body, the, the church, is the physical, tangible group of fellow travelers who walk this journey alongside you. And in them, we have the ultimate brothers and sisters, those who've been adopted into God's family. And it's their handshakes, it's their embraces that can go a long way on this long and arduous voyage that we are on in the Christian life. But Jesus gives us also something else, something that is tangible and physical to sustain us along the way. As I said in this passage, there's been much debate about uh, what these verses mean in the history of the church. Some see them primarily as referring to the Lord's Supper, uh, but this would be the only place in all of Scripture that makes the eating of the bread and drinking of the wine in the Lord's Supper the only necessary condition for life in Christ. And in fact, the Scriptures say that we can eat the bread and drink the wine of the Lord's Supper to our own damnation. For that reason, I, I take these verses not simply as referring to the Lord's Supper, but nonetheless, in the Lord's Supper, we are united to Christ. We feast on His spiritual food, on His spiritual body and blood uh, through faith, through these tangible signs of bread and wine. These, are the, these signs, they're not just empty uh, memorials, but they actually convey something powerful. When we receive the bread and the wine in faith, we lay hold of the crucified and risen Jesus in a more sure way than when we just listen to a sermon. In the Lord's Supper, we, we taste and we smell and we see and we touch the love of God for us in Jesus Christ. So my friends, as we boldly uh, come to this table, let us boldly come and feed on Christ in your hearts by faith with thanksgiving. And you will receive Him who is the true food for your life. Amen.